0: We're looking this morning at the joy of America in our series, Joyful Souls. You'll note in your bulletin outline, the first thing we want to discuss is the fact that we are a blessed nation. I use the word blessed in reference to God blessing our nation. One would have to work long and hard to find a specific and isolated reference in the Bible to the founding of the United States. Some uh, Bible students have tried to do that. They've looked at little uh, statements that are found in prophetic literature and they say, see, 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 here's the United States. Well, I look and I scratch my head and I think, I don't see the United States there, you know, but uh, they're, they're so eager to find the United States in prophetic prophecy that they uh, grab at straws, I think. And yet this is no reason to dismiss America as insignificant in the plan of God. You've heard it said a hundred times that the United States was founded upon the Judeo-Christian faith. That's true. I mean, though you don't find a prophecy that talks about necessarily the formation of the United States. But when we look historically, when we look at and read the documents, and we're going to look at some of those today, you will see that we were founded upon the Judeo-Christian faith, meaning that there is an undeniable connection between God forming the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, the people of God as the physical descendants of Abraham, which then led to the formation of the church of Jesus Christ, the descendants of Abraham in the spiritual sense of Galatians 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we ask, what promise? Genesis 12, verse 2 and following. I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation. You, Abraham, that's Israel. And, here's the part of the promise, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We don't have to guess at the interpretation of God's statement here because when we come to the new covenant, the apostle Paul clarifies. Here's what he writes. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, non-Jews, by faith and announce the gospel in advance. To Abraham saying, all nations will be blessed through you. Galatians 3, verse 8. And America is part and parcel to the all nations that are referenced here. Now let us remember some things. Firstly, let us remember that Israel, as the people of God, had its roots. Yes, Israel had its roots in pagan culture. say, oh, how can you say that? Well, it's in the book. Think about this. There was no people of God until God set His affections upon a particular people group, made promises to that group, and then proceeded to keep His word and to expand His salvation to other people groups. Simply put, God had to start somewhere He's going to establish a nation that He's going to call the people of God. Joshua gave this historical analysis of Israel to the new generation of Israelites just about to enter Canaan. And here's what he said. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago... Your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river. River is capitalized in your Bibles because it's a reference to the Euphrates River. They lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. It's very clear. Abraham and his brother Nahor, as well as Terah, the father, that whole household, were pagans worshiping other gods, idols. It goes on. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, and I led him through Canaan, and I gave him many descendants. Joshua 24, verse 2 and 3. So, if we're going to even talk about Israel as a nation, we have to talk about their pagan roots. They were not believers in the God of the Bible. They didn't know anything about the God of the Bible. They worshiped stones and idols and so forth. Again, reading from Deuteronomy 7, the second reading of the law. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love. To a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following. So, at the last reading of the law, this was prior to Moses' death, Moses reiterates the fact God, through Moses, is saying, Remember, you know, <laughs> you were just among a bunch of other people, and I chose you out of all the nations that existed to be my people. And I didn't choose you because you were something special, because you were mighty and strong. You were the fewest of people. I chose you to keep my covenant. My covenant that was made to Abraham. Again, Isaiah 51, verse 2. God says, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. When I called him, he was but one. And I blessed him and made him many. Wow. Just think about that. God started out with a man. with One man. And He made him into many. Isaiah 51 verse 2. So let us remember that the promise to Abraham and Sarah involved more than Israel's nation. Yeah, I began that way, but You know, hidden in that promise is references to much more. No longer will you be called Abram, we read. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And by the way, that is the meaning of the name Abraham, father of many. So his name was changed from Abram to Abraham he goes on, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations, plural, of you, and kings will come from you. Genesis 17, verse 5 and 6. And then later, later down in the same text, verse 15, he addresses Sarah and he says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Plural, kings of people will come from her. So included, and by, this is Matthew seven or Genesis seventeen, included in these promises. The Abrahamic covenant is first stated in Genesis 12, then again in 15, then again in chapter 17. And every time you read a restatement of the covenant made to Abraham, we get a little larger picture of the expansion of the import of that covenant. Yeah, it starts out with a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah. But before we're done with all of this statements on the covenant, we're talking about nations. Nations and kings, plural, coming from this couple. That brings us then to the subject of a Christian people. When Israel refused to worship God alone, He judged them in this way. They were taken captive. First by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, in what has been called the dispersion. Let me read it for you from Ezekiel chapter 36. I dispersed them, Israel, I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered throughout the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And whenever, wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave His land. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had been scattered. Ezekiel 36, verse 19 through 21. So, you see what happened. Now, that's a long time into Israel's history, but it came to the place where they disowned their God, they started worshipping the idols of the nations around them, and so God took them into captivity, and He fragmented Israel as a nation and scattered them. And it's called the dispersion. In our theology, we talk about the lost ten tribes of Israel. Lost because assimilated. Not lost in the sense that They aren't Israelites anymore, but lost in that sense. Well, this was the beginning of the downgrade of physical Israel. Physical Israel now. As the representatives of God's people on earth and the promise of something new occurring. And Ezekiel speaks about the new that's coming. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So said Ezekiel in his prophecy. Jeremiah in his prophecy makes it more pointed. This is the covenant, God says for Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins. No more. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34. See, the old covenant, the law, had problems because the people didn't have a heart. And they, this way, they didn't have the ability to keep the law. Now here's where it gets interesting for us. The writer of Hebrews quotes from this text in Jeremiah about the new covenant, and he applies it to the believers in Christ. Saying this, by calling this covenant new, I'm reading scripture, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. The Greek word here will be abrogated. It will be done away with. It will be gone. It will be no longer effective. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God replaced the old covenant with the new because part of Israel's worship was the sacrifice of bulls and goats which could never take away sins, Hebrews 10, verse 11. The new covenant, Jesus taught, was written in His blood. We're going to celebrate that in our next service around the communion table. Luke 22, verse 20. And Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20 states... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is through His body. Hebrews 10, verse 19 and 20. Something far superior than the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of Jesus, God's very Son, opens finally the way for us To enter into the most holy place. You know that even Israelites in the days of the temple of Solomon were not allowed to enter the most holy place. They had a priest, Aaron's line, that once a year could enter the most holy place, but never without blood. And the sins of the people were covered for another year And then he'd have to repeat it next year and so on. But you, as a normal, pew-sitting Israelite, if we could say it that way, could never, never enter the most holy place. You'd have been struck dead. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. By His blood we may enter boldly into the very presence of our God into the most holy place. That is the significance of the curtain of the temple being torn from top to bottom the very hour that Jesus was crucified. So you see, this is no longer a Jewish thing, but now it becomes an all-nation thing. Peter removes the Jewish element when he said in his sermon in Acts 4, Salvation is found in no one else, referring to Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men, not just to Jews, by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. What's he doing? He's opening it and he's saying, look, it's not just to Jews, it's to men of the world. You've got one Savior and that's Jesus Christ. So a shift then takes place in which people of God is no longer defined exclusively as Israel, the nation, and Abraham's descendants are no longer considered just Jews or any of the Semitic offshoots of Abraham's uh, progeny. Abilities as the father of many nations. Paul writes it this way. Because of their transgressions, Israel's, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their rejection, I'm still reading scripture, their rejection of Christ, of course, is the reconciliation of the world. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, the Jews, but kindness to you, he's writing to the Romans, to the Gentiles, provided that you continue in His kindness. Romans 11, verse 15 and following. You see the shift. It's no longer Jews as the exclusive people of God, but now Gentiles from from the world, from many nations, become part of the people of God. Through faith, of course, in Jesus. The Jesus that the Jews have rejected. We are now living in that period of history, awaiting what Paul calls the full number of the Gentiles to be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles. Romans 11, verse 25 there is coming a future reconciliation of disobedient israel i believe that but their reconciliation will only be through repentance of their sins and faith in jesus as the christ who formerly they had have rejected it's not a special salvation way for jews no they have to come to this christ who is the savior of sinners and the messiah they missed. Now this switch in the paradigm makes for some interesting teaching by the Apostle Paul, who you will remember was a physical Jew himself, descended from the tribe of Benjamin by his own testimony, Romans chapter 11, verse one. So what does this Jew now have to say about the people of God. It's very important. Here's what he says, Romans 2, verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from Ben, but from God. Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. So there's a shift here. And he's saying, we have to start thinking about Jew. You know, if we're going to think about the people of God, the nation, a nation of God's people, we have to start thinking in a different Paradigm, we have to start thinking in, in terms of a different sphere. Don't keep looking at physical circumcision, you know, that kind of thing that separated them or at least carried the mark of separation. Don't keep thinking in terms of outward genealogies, things of that nature. Now you've got to flip your mind and start thinking about the spiritual realities. Again, he writes, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What's he talking about? Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Wow, now this is really getting involved. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, I'm still reading scripture, It is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Romans 9, verse 6 through 8. Now that's heavy duty shifting, isn't it? You can't just look and say, my name is Goldstein. (laughs) I'm a Jew. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm one of Abraham's children. I'm a person of God. And Now Paul's saying that all of who are descended from Israel, are, they're not all Israelites. All that are descended from Abraham aren't his children. You have to look in the spiritual dimension. Again, Paul included the Philippians who were Greeks, Philippian church, in his distinction to the Jewish teachers of the law. He's talking to them. And he says of himself, along with the Philippians, it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3, verse 3. I'll bet, boy, I'll bet their ears were tingling when they heard that. These Jewish teachers of the law were confronting Paul. And he says, you think your children... Of Abraham, I want to tell you something. We, we're the children of God. We are the true circumcision. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we don't put any confidence in the flesh just because uh, we have had fleshly circumcision done. He gets more pointed to the Galatian churches, which are also Greek churches. Now they were flirting with the idea that, uh, well, maybe faith in Christ is, that. yeah, that's very important, but... Maybe we need to be circumcised too because Judaizers, teachers of the Jewish faith, had come into the Galatian churches and they said, okay, that's fine that you love Jesus and you want to be uh, followers of Christ. But along with Jesus, you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the law. And so he says to these churches, they were collective churches in Galatia, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Galatians 6, verse 15 and 16. He's saying to the Galatian churches, you know, you're the Israel of God now. And and as, as such, it isn't circumcision or uncircumcision. That doesn't mean anything. It's where your relationship is with Christ. By the way, Jesus got into all of this discussion with the Pharisees himself, face to face, personally, in the time of his ministry before Paul. When the Pharisees asserted, we are the children of God because of being Abraham's offspring, Jesus didn't take that lying down. He challenged them and here's what he said. I know you are Abraham's descendants. I know that. The word in Greek is sperma, from which we get sperm. And in the King James Version, it's translated seed. I know you are Abraham's seed. You're Abraham's physical descendants. Sperma. Yet, you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence and you do what you have heard from your father. Well, they retorted, "Abraham is our father." They answered. And here's Jesus. If you were Abraham's children I changes the word here in Greek it's not sperma, it's techna, which means a reproduction of parents, a reproduction of the parents. If you were Abraham's reproduction, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, let me get, turn my page here, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, and Abraham did not do such things. John 8, verse 37 through 40. So you see the argument? Jesus is right there with Paul. And he's into the new paradigm. These Pharisees are saying, we have Abraham as our father. He says, yeah, I know, he, you know you're a physical descendant of Abraham, but you, you don't have his nature. You don't have his spiritual nature. You don't have his soul. Why not? Because you're trying to kill me, that's why. And this Abraham did not do. And this is in this text where they say something to this effect, I'm paraphrasing, they say something to Jesus like, you know, you're, you're not even 50 years old yet, and, and you're talking as though Abraham, as though you knew him personally. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And he used the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah, which is the Old Testament name that no Jew will pronounce, no Orthodox Jew will pronounce, out of sacred reference to God and the scripture says they picked up stones to stone him we'll have none of that blasphemy from you Mr. Jesus and they would not abide they just (laughs) proved Jesus' point you're not of the spirit of Abraham you're out to kill me. Here you got your stones in your hand and you're ready to do it. So you can see that the shift of the new covenant is from physical Israel, being the Jew, to spiritual Israel. And that is all who demonstrate in their spiritual nature that they love God as did Abraham. Let me read it for you from Galatians 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, writes Paul. He's writing to the Gentiles. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all those distinctions you see. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise galatians 3:26 through 29 Amen. so that's the new paradigm it isn't can you chase, trace your physical ancestry back to father abraham and by the way romans 4 is another wonderful text you need to read that where he deals with the whole subject of again the difference between abraham and Christ and how Abraham represents not only physical Israel in terms of producing people but also spiritual Israel which is all the people of God who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Galatians he tells us that the seed, if you're thinking it was Isaac, Abraham's son, the seed is Christ. So he's the one that we put our faith in. And it's not being an Isaacite that makes us a child of Abraham. It's being a follower of Christ. Now, should all of that, to bring us to point B in our sermon, the Gospel's westward march. The first point you'll notice under that is that the Christian nations, plural, were founded in the West. Think of the Middle East, and then think of where did Christianity formulate and flourish. It was West. West of the Mediterranean. This was of God's doing. The great missionary enterprise was carried on by the apostles of Jesus Christ in their obedience to the evangelistic mandate given by the Lord himself and here it is. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them all nations, you see, plural. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. And you can find versions of that mandate given in the the Gospel of Mark and also the Gospel of Luke. Now I will say that there did seem to be an initial priority to the Jewish nation per se, the physical Jews. For Jesus told them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's where you start, and in all Judea, okay, branching out a little further, and Samaria, branching out a little further yet, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1 verse 8. So Luke tells us that Paul uh, followed that particular principle, as did, by the way, uh, all of the apostles beginning firstly in Jerusalem. That's why they stayed in Jerusalem. They received the power of the Holy Spirit and they began ministering and preaching right away to Jews in Jerusalem, then spread out to the various uh, provinces and eventually the world. And it became the pattern of Paul's life. Uh, for example, he and his missionary companions came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, and we read the text. As his custom was, here it is, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, that would be Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Which what the word Christ means. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, they were there too, and not a few prominent women. Acts 17, verse four, the first four verses, Acts 17. So as his custom was, he always started, if there, if there were a Jewish synagogue in the city where Paul went, he's in, these, he's in the Greek provinces, he would go into the Jewish synagogue and try to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and they'd missed him. But, but, that said, Paul's ministry became so prominently tailored towards the Greeks that he could say to the brethren at Rome, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry. Romans 11, verse 13. And this was much the... This was much the pattern for most of the apostles, with the exception of Peter, who was called the apostle to the Jews, Galatians 2, verse 8. So you've got the apostles starting to branch out, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and so forth. And Paul's ministry just exploded in the whole Mediterranean area, primarily with the Greek states, the Greek states. So he he says, well, you know, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. That's, That's my ministry. I make a lot of it. And, and Peter, he's the apostle to the Jews. Now they crossed, you know, they, they did cross borders and, and ministries and things of that nature. The first person to take the gospel to any Gentile was not Paul. It was Peter, the household of Cornelius. It's in the book. Paul wasn't even saved by that time. So things really, really changed. A Greek historian by the name of Metaspirites reports, and I'm reading his works, that Peter was not only in these western parts, that is to say the western Mediterranean, but particularly that he was a long time in Britain where he converted many nations to the faith. Andrew, his brother, ministered around the Baltic Sea. Simon the Zealot directed his journey towards Egypt, then to Cyrene, then to Africa, throughout Mauritania and all of Libya, preaching the gospel. James went to Spain, Philip eventually to India. So you see what is happening here. You got the Mediterranean, and where are they ministering? They're going west. We read Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. That would be right north of um, Palestine, and you know, to the west of. They were in the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, listen to this, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the provinces of Asia. Asia is east. And they're up there ministering into the Galatian provinces. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. Now Bithynia is moving east, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. Wow. (laughs) So they passed by Mysia and they went to Troas. Troas is at the top of the... Mediterranean area there. And during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, Greek province west of. man from Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Acts 16, verse 6 through 10. Now, brethren, this is extremely significant. He's up there in Galatia. Bithynia and Mysia are right above the Galatian provinces. So it's very logical. They're thinking, said, well, let's, you know, just go through, we'll go through Mysia, Bithynia, we'll start working our way east. God says, no, you won't. And he did, did this, he turned them to Troas, and from Troas they get a call to go even further west, over into the Macedonian province, one of the provinces of Greece, the upper province. Macedonia, Achaia, Macedonia, places like Thessalonica and so on, Achaia, places like Corinth and Athens but Greek, you understand? Greek peninsula. And so it's like God just took a hold of them and said, no, 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 no. You're not going to go east. You're going to go west. And this brethren is why places like Spain and Germany and France and the Netherlands and Britain and Scotland we're the first to be evangelized with the good news of the gospel. And places like Russia and China and Mongolia and Turkey and Vietnam and so on are still somewhat deprived of the gospel even today. God said, we're heading west. God did that. You, We read it. Paul wanted to go that way. God said, no, 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 you're going to go this way. Concerning America no one even knew of our existence until the voyages of Christopher Columbus. He writes of the fire of his sea adventures and here's what he writes. Who can doubt that this fire was not merely mine but also the Holy Spirit who encouraged me with a radiance of marvelous illumination from His sacred scriptures, urging me to press forward with a hand that could be felt. The Lord opened my mind to the fact that it would be possible. And He opened my will to desire to accomplish that project. The Lord purposed that there should be something miraculous in this matter of the voyage to the Indies. I understand from his viewpoint where he thought he was doing. He thought he could sail to the Indies by sailing west. They said, you're an idiot. Well, he, he believed that the earth was round, not square. And so he set out on this voyage. And what began with Columbus in Spain exploded in time with the prowess of the British Navy that extended exploration to the new world everywhere. I didn't realize this, but in my study this week I found out the British Empire far surpassed whatever we think of the Roman Empire. Covered more ground, more territory, more nations, more explorations than anything Rome ever had. When they speak of the British government or the commonwealth or whatever, they are talking about that period of time. When persecution broke out in England against the nonconformists, basically Baptists, but other nonconformist churches, they, they, these were non Church of England groups. Remember, Henry VIII was going to say, All right, we'll make our own church, and we'll just cut ourselves off from Rome. We won't be Roman Catholics, we'll be Anglicans and they established their own church which is basically a Protestant view of Roman Catholicism. They have the mass and everything else going on, same as Roman Catholicism. But when he did that, these were this religion was not left open to the people to decide for themselves. He said, you will be part of this church. And they Ones that rebelled were called nonconformists. conformists Well, they fled firstly to the Netherlands and eventually to America, willing as they were to pay a small fortune just so they could find freedom of religion. We're studying on Sunday nights the allegory of Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. Bunyan was one of the non Baptists that spent 16 years in English prisons because he would not knuckle under to Anglican teaching and theology. And they said, well, let you out, we'll let you out if you stop preaching the gospel. They would leave him out on occasions and he'd go right back to preaching the gospel and they'd slap him right back in jail. 16 years later, he was released. See religious freedom wasn't always free. Especially for the Baptists who were persecuted for their strange view of believers baptism. We really broke from Rome. And that was not appreciated by some of the higher churches. That brings us then to the Bill of Rights in the Constitution of the United States. And I'm really skipping a lot of ground here. Um, the Revolutionary War and all of those various things. And I'm just going to give you a a sampling. I had so much I have to kind of be piecemeal and be selective. And I tried to pick names of the signers of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or the Declaration of Independence names that you would know. Some of them you won't know, but they're so important I included them anyway. John Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence. A judge, a diplomat, signer of the Bill of Rights second president of the United States. Here's what he wrote. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence, he's referring to the founding fathers of our country. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and as immutable as the existence and attributes of God that's a pretty forceful statement john quincy adam sixth president of the united states diplomat secretary of state us senator us representative the man that was called the hellhound of the abolitionists fighting for abolition of slavery he writes in the chain of human events the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the savior The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity. Wow. These are our founding fathers. By the way, you can go to a website and get all this. It's called wallbuilders.com. Wallbuilders.com or .org. might be .org. And it's all on the Constitution and the founding documents. They're there for you to read. Samuel Adams. So we've got John Adams, John Quincy Adams, now Samuel Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence, father of the American Revolution, as he was called, ratifier of the U.S. Constitution, governor of the state of Massachusetts, wrote, I conceive that we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler of the world, that the confusions that are and have been among the nations may be overruled by their promoting and speedily bringing in the holy and happy period when the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be everywhere established and the people willingly bow to the scepter of Him who is the Prince of Peace. Powerful statement. He's basically saying there will be no peace in the world till all come under the scepter of Christ, the Prince of Peace. Now this one you won't know. His name is Elias Boudinet, I think. I have that right. He was the President of Congress. He signed the Peace Treaty to end the American Revolution. He was the first attorney admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court bar. He was, a framer, he was the framer of the Bill of Rights and Director of the U.S. Men. Wow, what a career, huh? For a guy you don't know and I don't know. He says, Let us enter on this important business under the idea that we are Christians on whom the eyes of the world are now turned. Let us earnestly call and beseech Him for Christ's sake to preside in our councils. We can only depend upon the all-powerful influence of the Spirit of God whose divine aid and assistance it becomes us as Christian people most devoutly to implore. Therefore I move that some minister of the gospel be requested to attend this congress every morning in order to open the meeting with prayer. End quote. So obviously it was uh, some kind of a meeting of the congress and he made that motion and that became part of the congress. It's still going on today. I don't know if you know that, but the Congress opens with prayer every time they meet. Ben Franklin. Now he's not generally known for being a believer. But what I want you to see is that even men who were not believers in the sense of salvation in Christ were nonetheless God-fearing men who were respectful of the Christian faith. It says of him that he was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a diplomat, a printer, a scientist, a signer of the Constitution, and governor of Pennsylvania. He wrote his own eulogy for his own funeral before he died. <laughs> That's that like Ben Franklin? You know, it does to me. And here's what he wrote. Now, remember, he's alive, but he wrote this about himself being dead. The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more beautiful edition corrected and amended by the author. Was he a Christian? I don't know. All the other indications are is that he wasn't, but he was at least God-fearing, not anti-God like we have today. John Hancock, that guy that signed with the big... you know, his big sing- signature. Signer of the Declaration of Independence, President of Congress, Revolutionary General, Governor of Massachusetts. He called on the state of Massachusetts to pray And then he listed all the things he wanted the state of Massachusetts to pray for. The list was long, so I'm only going to be selective here. Here's what he had on on his list. Pray that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that the whole earth may be filled with His glory. Now there's a prayer request. Number two. That the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with His glory. Number three, pray to confess their sins and to implore forgiveness of God through the merits of the Savior of the world. Number four, to cause the benign religion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be known understood and practice among all the inhabitants of the earth. And on it goes with his <clears throat> prayer list that he gave to Massachusetts when he was the governor of the year. Other signers of the Declaration of Independence, Francis Hopkinson, a church music director, Jared, you'll love this, a church music director and choir leader who edited a famous American hymn book the revolution. Roger Sherman, who wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. Benjamin Rush, who started Sunday school in America and founded the country's first Bible society. These are all members of Congress. James Wilson, who had been trained as a clergyman in Scotland but became an attorney teaching students the biblical basis of civil law. And many others, and many others that we could be quoting. In fact, at least twenty-nine of the signers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights had been trained in schools whose primary purpose was the preparation of ministers. Harvard, Princeton, and so forth. William and Mary and others. Didn't know that, did you? But our these hallmarks of advanced education were all schools of theology and not liberal theology, I might add. In January of 1781, Robert Aiken, publisher of the Pennsylvania Magazine in Philadelphia, petitioned Congress for permission to print English language Bibles on his printing presses in America rather than import the Bibles. Now this was just prior to the Revolution. And what he was protesting was that England, England would send Bibles to us. Yeah, cases of Bibles to be sold in America. But like they did with everything else, including the tea and all that, you had to have the proper stamp on the Bible that shows it was produced in England. And because of that, there was a tariff. You paid a tariff to get your Bible. So Aitken petitioned Congress and Why can't we print our own Bibles right here in the States? I have a printing press. So here's what Congress did. They assigned two chaplains to oversee Aiken's works to see if it was going to be, you know, legit, follow the biblical text and so forth. And they approved his work and so Congress gave Aiken a ringing endorsement in the form of a congressional resolution, listen to this, to, here it is, publish this recommendation in the manner that he shall think proper to help sell and circulate the Bible. So Robert Aiken then proceeded to print his Bible, now known as the Aiken Bible or the Bible of the Revolution, And that Bible was approved by the Founding Fathers in Congress. It was the first English-based Bible to be printed in America and it was paid for out of the U.S. Treasury. So much for the secularist view of the separation of church and state. The cornerstone of the Capitol building was laid by George Washington when they were building it in 1793, but the building was not completed until November of 1800. So from 93 to 1800. Jefferson wrote the approval of the Capitol for church, listen to this, the approval of using the Capitol building for church was given by both the House and the Senate. Public worship is now regularly administered at the Capitol every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock by the Reverend Mr. Ralph, so wrote Mr. Jefferson." Did you know that our Capitol building was used as the first church area in Washington D.C. because there were no church buildings? Brethren, one can readily see how far down the slippery slope to neo-paganism our country has slipped. Our president has declared that that we are not a Christian nation. Lies, deception, and intrigue of the blackest nature subvert within the halls of Congress and and the administration. While neither candidate running for the presidency can in any way give the same credible evidence of faith in Christ as we have read of these founding fathers in today's uh, sermon, we can nonetheless make an intelligent decision based on the platform proposed by each. The social issues, which people would like to say that we have nothing to say because they're social issues. Well, guess what? The social issues are moral issues to us. Abortion on demand, homosexual marriage, euthanasia of the elderly, it's all part of the Obama Medicare program rampant national debt do you know that that's a violation of biblical principles we're now over 16 trillion dollars in debt that's 52,000 and some other odd dollars per person for every person in the United States and i'm going to die and leave that to my kids but guess what? They're going to die and leave that debt to their kids and so on unless things are turned around. This all confirms God's analysis. Proverbs 14, verse 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Voting is coming up on Tuesday. If you haven't already voted by absentee ballot, Vote your conscience, yes. But may your conscience, which simply means to be informed, may your conscience be informed and directed by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Scriptures, not your pocketbook, not by the trend of the times, not by the counsel of unbelieving friends who have a different agenda. The nation stands at a crossroad and your vote counts. In the 2008 election, 33 million evangelicals voted in the election of 2008 so oh, that's that's pretty good yeah it's pretty good but 19 million stayed home and didn't vote at all now they're saying again same thing's going to happen people are disenfranch- disenchanted because our two candidates, neither one of them are Christian, so how do you vote for them? Well, you look at what they stand for and you make your decision based upon that. We are at a crossroads. And our country is either going to go the way of government, big government, and handouts, or it's going to go, away, go back to the principles that we've been reading about, some of these this morning, in terms of freedom freedom of religion, freedom of all the things that we enjoy so much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have the freedom that we do have. It's not accidental that America was founded upon these Christian principles. But if there has been anything going on in these past years, it's attack against Christianity and the gospel and the church and religion and all of the principles that we hold to. And things have been really turned turned upside down. We have an opportunity, probably just this one opportunity, to right wrongs. I pray that you'll help us to do that. Give us the wisdom that must come from God to know how to vote so that our country can be restored. We read of these men of the past. Wow, how boldly they spoke for Jesus Christ. How unapologetically... They referenced him and the fact that the whole world needed to come under his scepter and his rule. It's a far cry from where we are today. We're working at breakneck speed to get God out of the country, God out of our Pledge of Allegiance, God out of our, off of our money, God out of our institutions, God out of our schools. Lord, bring us back. It could be, I'm sure it is that we, like Israel, sinned against you. We haven't carried the missionary mandate to our neighbors and friends as we ought. So what do they know about the gospel? Well, they know about Christ, basically nothing. They're unchurched, they're neo-pagans, they've invented God to be what they want Him to be. He's not the God of the Bible and so they're worshiping idols. And in their idolatry and in their paganism they choose what is secular and what is pleasing to the lusts of their flesh. And they don't stand on righteous principles. But we need to stand. Lord, I pray that you'll help us move in this election to bring about reform. We do pray for our leaders. You have told us to do that. That it may be well with us. Well, will it be well with us? Will it be well with your church? I don't know. But we pray. We pray for all of those in Congress, in the administration, in our local governments of Michigan. And we're asking, Lord, that your hand of providence will move. You do put the people in authority. We read that in Romans 13. But one of the beauties of our country is that part of our country and the founding of it allows us to have a voice in those that rule over us. It's not just kings coming in authority over us because of ancestry. So while we have that choice, let us exercise that choice with your wisdom, we pray. Amen.